Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, Matt's not preaching, so that means to bring in the new year, we get to go to Pizza Ranch first out of all the churches. Um, just kidding, just kidding, we're not. It's not a bad way to bring in the new year. Um, hey, you're going to want to follow along this morning. Um, we're going to be dealing with an entire chapter of scripture, and to better help me help you, to help me to help you, it would really help you to follow along. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 17, the entire chapter. Um, and I imagine Ezekiel isn't a book that a lot of us really know that well. Um, it's not a book that, I mean, I've read it, um, but it's not a book that I know uh, that well personally. And so um, let's get a little bit of context so that we can better understand where we're at in Scripture. Um, Ezekiel was a prophet during uh, a time of great confusion and um, Yeah, just a lot of turmoil and confusion in the 6th century B.C. And chronologically speaking, he is, um, Jeremiah comes before him, and Daniel's pretty much a contemporary. So Daniel and Ezekiel are going on about the same time. And a little bit of biblical history, um, I'm kind of a history nerd, so just bear with me if this isn't really doing it for you at the beginning. Um, A little bit of biblical history, the Assyrian Empire conquered Israel, the Jews, about, uh, and then after that, in the early 7th century, or the late 7th century, the early 6th century, Babylon comes in and just conquers everything. Um, think like 300, the movie, just, they just annihilate everything. That's Persia, actually, so. Anyway, um, and Babylon's conquering uh, policy was to take all of the elites from the land. The the Assyrians, their policy was to just take the women and uh, procreate their own uh, kingdom, and that's where we get the Samaritans from, and that's, the Jews kind of saw that as um, betraying Israel, and so Babylon conquers, they take all of the elites, and this is known as the Babylon captivity or the Babylonian exile. And many Old, Testaments, Old Testament prophets uh, either speak to this or speak right after it. So think Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah come kind of during it, Daniel come during it, and then after it we get Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, this is a major historical event. Um, and I know this is a lot of history and a lot of context, um, but I really want to impress this morning that this, is, this was written for its time. Uh, there were geopolitical realities happening in Israel at this time, and that's why God sent this message to Israel. Um, so, as we, hopefully that can help you kind of situate yourself as we get into scripture this morning. We're going to be starting in chapter 17, verse 1, um, but before we get there, will you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we come into worship this morning, and some of us are excited to hear from you. Others of us are here because it's what we do. Some of us don't know why we're here this morning, but God, wherever we're at, wherever we're coming in at, God, I ask that you would just open our hearts to your word this morning, that um, your spirit would flood this place and teach us more about your love and more about who you are and who we are. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So, Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 1. 
And we're going to do, stop a little bit to recap what's going on. I like to do this with the youth group uh, just because it helps me stay engaged and it helps them stay engaged, and I think it'll help you stay engaged. So here we go. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set forth an allegory and tell it to the Israelites as a parable. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. A great eagle with powerful wings, long feathers and full plumage of varied colors came to Lebanon. Taking hold of the top of a cedar, he broke off its topmost shoot and carried away to a land of merchants where he planted it in a city of traders. He took one of the seedlings of the land and, plant, and put it in fertile soil. He planted it like a willow by abundant water. And it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. Its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out leafy boughs. So the Lord comes to Ezekiel, says, give them a parable. Parables aren't something that just happens in in the New Testament. They're a common Jewish teaching method. And so the parable goes like this. There's an eagle, comes from Lebanon, grabs the top of a cedar, breaks it off, plants it in a city of merchants, and then takes a seedling and plants it in fertile soil, and it starts to grow. So everything is going just fine, but soon we're going to see that the parable shifts and that there's something else going on here as well. But there was another great eagle with powerful wings and full plumage. The vine now sent it out its roots towards him from the plot where it was planted and stretched out its branches to him for water. It had been planted in good soil by abundant water so that it would produce branches, bear fruit, and become a splendid vine. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, will it thrive? Will it not be uprooted and stripped of its fruits so that it withers? All its new growth will wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up by the roots. It has been planted, but will it thrive? Will it not wither completely when the east wind strikes it? Wither away in the plot where it grew. So this is the, the second eagle that I talked about in the children's message. It comes, and then all of a sudden, the tree decides, I'm going to stretch out my branches and my roots to him for water, which doesn't make sense because eagles don't have water. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 10. And God answers our question. Then the word of the Lord came to me, say to this rebellious people, Do you not know what these things mean? Say to them, The king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and carried off her king and her nobles, bringing them back with him to Babylon. Then he took a member of the royal family and made a treaty with him, putting him under oath. He also carried away the leading men of the land so that the kingdom would be brought low, unable to rise again, surviving only by keeping his treaty. But the king rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt to get horses in a large army. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Will he break the treaty and yet escape? So we get a little bit of an explanation here, and we're gonna give, I'm going to give you a little bit more explanation later on, but God gives a little bit more explanation of what is actually going on in this parable. So here we go in verse 16. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, he shall die in Babylon, in the land of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose treaty he broke. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great horde will be of no help to him in war. When ramps are built and siege works erected to destroy many lives, he despised the oath by breaking the covenant because he had given his 
hand in pledge, and yet did all these things, he shall not escape. So there's our answer. That the, the tree is not going to prosper. The, the king who broke the oath is not going to prosper. He's not going to escape. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. As surely as I live, I will repay him for despising my oath and breaking my covenant. I will spread my net for him, and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and execute judgment on him there because he was unfaithful to me. All his choice troops will fall by the sword, and the survivors will be scattered to the winds. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. God takes this pretty seriously. He doesn't, even though it's not an oath or a covenant with him, in this part, God takes ownership of it. And now, in, in verse 22 to 24, this is when we get kind of that, that future stuff that we always want in prophecy. When we think of a prophet, we think of prophecy, we go, oh, it's, it's future prediction. This is kind of where that we get that in this passage. We've been dealing a lot with what's going on in this time and, and, and what was going on for Ezekiel and his people, and this is where we get the hope. God says, I'm going to destroy everything, and then we get hope. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender spring from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it, and it will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter and shade in its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make, low, and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. So that was a lot of scripture. But as, we, as we're going to see, it has some meaning for us this morning. So the reason we're not given specific names in this passage, you may be thinking, well, why didn't, why didn't Ezekiel, why didn't God just say their names? Um, the reason we're not given specific names is because Ezekiel's original readers would have known. They're, they're people of this time. They, they didn't need to, to say, hey, King Roger. or They would have known that the king of Israel was Zedekiah. They would have known that the king of Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. They would have known all these things. And so they didn't necessarily need to give names. And so I find that for me the best way to understand a parable is to separate out the characters, figure out who they are, and then bring it back together and figure out and understand what it is trying to get at. So in verse 3, we are given an eagle, a great eagle. And in verse 12, we're told that it's king, uh, king of Babylon. And so that's King Nebuchadnezzar. The topmost shoot in verse 4 is Jehoiachin, who was only king for about three months. Can you imagine coming in, being king, having these visions of, of grandeur, and then being deposed and having your kingdom taken over and all your people taken out of your land. Very humiliating for Jehoiachin. The seed of the soil is Zedekiah, who is the uncle of Jehoiachin. So not only do you get this high and lofty position and then it gets taken away three months in, it's given to your uncle. And for some of you, that would be a slap in the face because some of our uncles are really, really strange. Uh, but Zedekiah gets placed in power, but it's not 
absolute power. He's a client king. He doesn't, he doesn't get to just do whatever he wants. He pays taxes to Babylon. He if steps out of line of Babylon. He loses his power. And the second great eagle is Pharaoh Hophra. Now Zedekiah has an agreement with the king of Babylon, but instead of honoring that, he seeks out Pharaoh Hophra to help liberate Israel. Never mind that the whole reason that Israel is in this situation is because Israel was unfaithful to God. So Zedekiah's whole, whole idea of liberation, to liberate Israel, is to be unfaithful to an oath that he made. And that's the reason why they're in the mess they're in, because they were unfaithful to the covenant that God had put, for, had put before them. Zedekiah can't handle not being in control. I don't know if that resonates with any of you. He can't handle not being in control, and so he tries to take matters into his own hands, and it has disastrous results. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm not, I'm not a big guy. Um, never have been. There wasn't a time in my life when I was the biggest kid in my class, and then all of a sudden, everyone else caught up. It was just, I was small, always been small, and that's the way it is. But surprisingly, I've never been beat up. I've never been bullied. I've never really been made fun of. And you're probably wondering, how did I do that? How did I manage that? Probably because I'm so good looking. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I learned early on that in order to prevent being beat up, I needed to have some bruisers as friends. Um, I needed to make friends with the biggest kids in my grade. Uh, this may not be the best advice, um, but I was a, I'm a bit of a schemer. I love strategy games. If you ever play me in a board game, you'll figure that out. I'm fiercely competitive and love strategy. And so I made friends with uh, the biggest kids in my class, and I've always done that. It's like a magnet, almost. I went to college, and an 18-year-old kid, I'm not going to get beat up anymore because of schoolyard bullies, and still all of my friends are the biggest kids on campus. And I don't know how that happens, but... Let's pretend for a second that there are these three kids named Israel, Babylon, and Egypt. Babylon is the bully and runs most of the playground. Everybody fears and some even respect him. He owns all the cool stickers. I don't know if this, there was an episode of Recess, if anybody knows what Recess is, where there was a sticker episode, and if you had the cool stickers, then you were, you were doing pretty good. And if you didn't have the cool stickers, then, well, you didn't have the cool stickers. And so, just humor me with this sermon illustration. And so Babylon has all the cool stickers, and he comes to Israel's area of the playground, the tetherball courts, and claims it as his own and takes all of Israel's good stickers. Babylon, not wanting a schoolyard riot, in a schoolyard brawl, negotiates with Israel, says, hey, I'll let you still kind of manage the tetherball court, but you got to pay me all of your good stickers. And Israel is kind of a small guy. He doesn't want to get in a fight. And so he says, all right, I'll give you my good stickers, and, you know, I, it'll be okay. The terms of the agreement seem fine. They seem fair. But as Babylon walks away, Israel starts to seethe with anger. These are my stickers that my father bought me. Why should I give them to him? So Israel kind of wanders over to the basketball courts, notices Egypt slamming another dunk down, and says, hey, hey, Egypt, 
what if I, what if I told you that you could run the whole playground, and I'll help you do it, and all I want is sole possession of the tetherball court? And Egypt kind of leans against the, the basketball post and says, I'd say I'm listening. And so they, they barter this deal, and it, it goes just like that. I mean, Israel will help Egypt take over Babylon's area of the playground, the swing sets, the slides, the monkey bars, the merry-go-round, all of it. And all Israel wants is to be able to keep his good stickers and manage the tetherball courts. So the plan is made. All three are going to meet by the swings. But here's the thing. Egypt doesn't show up. Egypt thinks, you know, we got a pretty good thing going on here. I got the basketball courts. I got a pretty good chunk of this playground. I don't think a fight's really worth it. So Egypt doesn't show up but doesn't tell Israel. Israel shows up. It's talking all kinds of smack to Babylon. You better wait till my friend gets here. We're going to beat you up. We're going to beat you up. Five minutes pass. Ten minutes pass. Babylon gets a little impatient. Decides, I'm just going to... We're going to end this right now. Babylon beats the crud out of Israel, takes all of his stickers, and leaves Israel bloodied and beaten. Sorry, that may have gotten a little deep into the playground imagery, um, but as I was writing it, I started to think of an animated TV show. And so, it, it, anyway, do you get the feeling of, the, of this scripture passage, though, that there's kind of a bully going on here, and Israel kind of wants to take it to him, but his friend doesn't show up. And this brings us to our first point. God owns our commitments in this passage. God owns the commitments that Zedekiah makes in this passage. So look with me to verse 16. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, he shall die in Babylon, in the land of the king who put him on the throne, who de- whose oath he despised, and whose treaty he broke. So in verse 16, it's King Nebuchadnezzar's oath. It's King Nebuchadnezzar's treaty. And then we switch to verse 19, which is only two, there's only two verses in between here. And all of a sudden, it sounds a little di- bit different. This is what the sovereign Lord says, As surely as I live, I will repay him for despising my oath. My covenant. It's a little strange that God takes ownership of a non-Jewish person's oath, a non-Jewish person's covenant. Just two verses separate it from being Nebuchadnezzar's oath that was broken to God's oath that was broken. Why? What's going on here? So let's go to Ecclesiastes 5.4. This is what this Ecclesiastes 5.4 says. When you vow a vow... To God, do not delay in paying for it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. You may say, well, if I just don't vow anything to God, then I don't necessarily have to pay for it. But the truth is, there's no such thing as a vow that's not made before God. The, the ancient people, they would say, let's, let's make a vow, let's make, like a, make an oath, and they would Say, as God is our witness. We, we still kind of have that in our own culture. And the truth is that there isn't a single atom in the universe where God doesn't say, 
mine. God takes ownership of everything. And so it shouldn't really surprise us that much that God takes ownership of this covenant, this oath. God has no pleasure in fools. Jesus tells us in Matthew to not swear vows, to not make oaths, but simply say yes or no. God took ownership of Zedekiah's commitment to Babylon, and he takes ownership of our commitments as well. So make our commitments and make our oaths in this next year as if they are before God, because I can assure you that they are. God owns our commitments and takes no pleasure in fools. Speaking of commitments, let's talk about New Year's resolutions. It is January 1st, after all. Does anybody have one that they're willing to shout out this morning? You can gain a bunch of accountability partners this morning. Does anyone have one they want to shout out? All right, no takers. Nobody wants to be held accountable. We will talk about that later in the year, about accountability, but... All right, whatever yours looks like, I looked up some, then I picked some out that were personal favorites of mine, and so here they are. Some of you might be able to relate to these. I will drive more carefully. People are starting to notice the dozens of dents in my car. I wonder if some of our cars out there look like that. This is a personal favorite of mine. I will always wear clean underwear, (laughs) just in case. I don't know what the just in case is there, but I imagine this is from a bachelor. For all the siblings around here, you may be guilty of this. I will not wet the bed and blame it on my younger brother. (laughs) This is a good one for anybody who makes the same excuses to their boss over and over again. I will not bore my boss with the same excuses. I will be more creative. (laughs) And this one is... by far and large, my favorite one. I will not ring the stewardess button on airplanes just to get her phone number. I'll let you decide which one of those is actually mine. Um, No, I'm just kidding. I looked them all up. But there's something about this new year, this this new beginning uh, that brings out kind of this I-can-do-it attitude, this seize-the-day moment, this uh, self-help belief that we we can do anything. I mean, we live in a culture that has something called the American dream, that if you just work hard enough, if you, just, if you put enough effort into it, then eventually you're going to make it. And that's kind of what the whole New Year's resolution thing is about, if we really think about it. It's, if I just work hard enough this year, even though I didn't keep my commitments last year, then I can do it. This year, I'm going to get in shape. This year, I'm going to spend more time with my family. It's kind of this American dream attitude. But the problem is that the American dream theology is false when it comes to our spiritual lives. We can see this in Zedekiah. It was unfaithfulness to God that put Israel in the situation. And rather than pursue God's way, Zedekiah kind of does his own thing. I can do it myself. I'm going to seize the day. I'm going to help myself. Zedekiah doubles down on unfaithfulness and tries to provide his own way. Our lives can look an awful lot like this. We mess up, and so we try to fix it, but we don't come to God to fix it. We, we do it ourselves, and all of a sudden, it, something else goes wrong, and then it just has this snowball effect. 
we often believe that if we try a little, a little harder, things will be okay. I mean, it makes a little bit of sense. If we just try a little bit harder, things will be okay. If I just pray a little bit harder, if I pray a little bit better, use the right words, if I serve a little bit harder, if I read my Bible more, then the hole in our hearts, the hole in our fi- families will finally be filled. If we just do it a little bit better this year, but it's simply not true. Listen to what Christian author John Stott writes. And maybe this will help, help us understand that if we're left to our own devices and we just keep trying, we're still going to fail. John Stott writes this. We are able to think, choose, create, love, and worship, but we're also able to hate, covet, fight, and kill. Human beings are inventors of hospitals for the care of the sick, universities for the acquisition of wisdom, and churches for the worship of God. But they have also invented torture chambers, concentration camps, and nuclear arsenals. This is the paradox of our humanness. We are both noble and ignoble, both rational and irrational, both moral and immoral, both creative and destructive, both loving and selfish, both godlike and bestial. So there's this, this tension between us. And so even when we try to do our best, we're still going to fumble and we're still going to stumble and we're not going to quite get to where we want to go. And so, and even Paul writes as much in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, and it's a very confusing chapter if you ever read that. But in verse 15, he sums it up this way. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For me, often that's my relationship to temptation. I know it's wrong. I hate it. I still stumble into it. And what I want to do, I don't do. And that's just the way things are. See, Paul's problem and our problem isn't necessarily a lack of effort. I mean, to say that Paul lacked effort is almost ridiculous. It's almost, asking, it's almost like saying LeBron James lacks effort in playing basketball. He doesn't lack effort. He just sometimes doesn't get it done. Sometimes he doesn't hit the final shot. Sometimes Paul misses the mark of Christ. He says, I don't understand what I do. I don't understand why I missed the mark. I don't understand why I didn't make the shot. Our problem isn't a lack of effort. Many of you have been trying hard. So what is our problem? Our problem is that we are relying solely on our own power to get to the final destination of the cross. When we do that, there are disastrous results. We don't understand what we do. Just ask Zedekiah. He gets taken from Israel after his plan goes awry and he's taken to Babylon where he is killed. Jehoiachin at least got to live. Zedekiah is killed. But the good news of the gospel is that it's not up to us. It's not our power that's supposed to to bring about spiritual change in our lives. It's not up to us to pray harder, to work better to, to, to read our Bibles more. It's, it's not up to us. 
that secures our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's his effort. It's his power that secures our relationship with him. Verses 22 through 24 tells us that God has a plan. We just spent this whole Advent season looking forward to God's plan. And so we're in the Old Testament now, and God says, I have a plan. Almost as if, he's like, Zedekiah, why, stop being so foolish. Stop trying to do things yourself. Stop trying to provide your own way. I have a plan. It involves, it involves a mountain and a tree which God will plant. And on that tree, birds of all kinds will come and rest under its branches. Do you kind of see the imagery here? On a mountain by Israel, by Jerusalem, a tree was planted and birds of all kinds will come and rest. Jesus himself says as much in the parable of the mustard seed in the New Testament. And if you don't remember that parable, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. Even though the mustard seed is the smallest seed, when it gets planted, it grows into the biggest tree, and birds from everywhere will come and rest in its branches. The birds in that story are Gentiles. The birds in our story are everyone. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, wow, geez, I, I just, I don't know, I'm pretty messy. I, I've messed up a lot. I, I've been in my own power a lot. I, I just don't, I don't know if, if this tree can bear my weight. The good news of the gospel is that it's for birds of all kinds. It's for people of all kinds. And we're told in Revelation that every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation are going to come before God. I'm telling you this morning that this tree that Christ hung on, on Mount Calvary, is meant not just for a specific kind of bird, not just for a specific kind of person, not just for people that come on Sunday mornings every Sunday, but for everyone. So let's go and look at Isaiah chapter 2, and I'm pretty sure we read this during Advent, but I think it has a lot of meaning for us this morning. Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest mountain. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his past, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. All peoples, 
all nations, will stream to the mountain of the Lord. So if you're tired of trying to live this life in your own power, if you're tired of trying to just get along and get by, the thing with New Year's resolutions and the New Year's, we all, all of a sudden get amnesia from the last year. How often, how many times do we have to make the same resolutions and fail to understand that it's not our power that completes those resolutions? It's not our power that completes this walk of faith. It's the Lord's power. It's the Spirit's power. So if you're tired of doing things on your own, if you're tired of trying to work and be in your own power, come to a tree that was planted on a hill and accept God's plan for your life before it's too late, before it has disastrous results as it did for Zedekiah. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you you look into each one of our lives and you know them intimately. You know our joy, you know our pain, you know our struggle. And in a, in, a, in a world where we're filled with social media, we admit that so often what people see of us is not the reality of what's going on in our lives. It's become so easy to put masks on. It's become so easy to look like, it has, like we have everything together. But if we're honest with you right now, we don't have it together. Like Paul, we say, I don't understand. I've been trying hard. I've been trying really hard this last year to make my family better, to make myself better, to, to follow you closer. And I always find that I have to play catch up, that I fall behind, that I stumble, that I lose sight of you on the path. Jesus, give me courage right now to, to scream out for you. To scream out that you would come and pick me up. And in your power, bring me to closer relationship with you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You can't do it on your own. You need Jesus. You need the Spirit to, to come and change your heart. I pray that this, going into this next year, that, that you would recognize that God sees your commitments. He takes ownership of them. And then realize he doesn't ask you just to fulfill those commitments on your own, but that he's there and willing and able and ready to help us fulfill those commitments. Go and have a blessed Sunday.